are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. My name is Sean Seguin. I'm the executive pastor here. Um, and we are continuing in this sermon series that just began last week on the gospel and justice. And Josh did a great job of kind of kicking us off this idea that this whole thing is based on that we are all created in the image of God, that, that humanity, no matter you know, your, your age, race, you know, class, whatever, all of us uh, are made in his image. And, and that is the basis for all justice here on this earth. And so today I get to preach on uh, the gospel and racism. And so we're diving into this, this topic, which is pretty sensitive. It's a heavy topic, and I know there are many potential dangers of a white pastor preaching on this kind of, situ- on this kind of thing. Um, I don't plan for my sermon to solve racism, uh, to fix it, to get rid of it. I don't. Uh, I, I know that I'm a learner, and, and so I'm still growing in all these things. So I just want to let you know that I believe that it is my job, though, as a shepherd to care for you guys and teach what I believe the Bible teaches us about how to handle this, this topic. And so uh, let's go ahead and just pray real quick and, and uh, kind of prepare all of our hearts for this, this heavy topic. God, thank you. Thank you that your word can speak into these kinds of difficult situations. Thank you that you have made us all in your image. I pray that we would leave this place challenged and convicted and encouraged, that we would move forward in faith and love for our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so this past week uh, marks the one-year anniversary of a significant shift in history. Uh, It was a moment when many uh, white people realized that just because we had a black president at one point didn't mean that the evils of racism were gone. Uh, The watching world saw with their own eyes the murder of a black man by a police officer. Uh, For the white community, the death of George Floyd was a disturbing injustice that forced us to all ask how we got to the point where someone who was meant to serve and protect um, actually was killing this unarmed man. And some answered that question by defending the officer and pointing out how bad of a person Floyd was, uh, while others actually did some introspection and, and, seriously, and seriously asked how they have potentially participated in some of the racism in the current systems and structures, and even thinking about how that has led to the disproportionate treatment of people of color. For the black community, George Floyd was not just one horrific injustice uh, that sparked something never felt before, but the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back after Tanisha Anderson, uh, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Tanisha Fonville, Freddie Gray, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, uh, Botham Jean, Steve, uh, Stephon Clark, Tatiana Jefferson, Breonna Taylor, and countless others, to see this man beg for his life as it slowly left him for many was like watching their worst fears played out. This is a community that has 20%, that's 20% more likely to be pulled over for minor traffic violations and then once they're stopped, 1.5 to two times more likely to be searched. Then uh, you get to the disproportionately harsher sentences for people of color than the, and the sad reality that uh, that even though the black, popu- black community makes up 13% of the US, they make up 24% of deaths by police officers. 
Now, I'm not one who claims that all or even most police like hate black people, but when you and the majority of people you know are often treated as guilty till proven innocent because of your skin color, seeing George Floyd murdered would not only affirm your fears, but inflame one's sense of injustice taking place. The existing fear, pain, and anger was lit ablaze within this community, not because this man was a hero, but because he was the victim of an injustice that had long been felt by this whole community. And while the black community has experienced the greatest amount of injustice in America, uh, there is a reality that simply not being white has led to many other people's own amount of injustice here as well. I mean, just look at 2020 and all the racist remarks against the Asian community uh, because of COVID. Uh, and this is a community that has faced their own stereotypes and forms of marginalization and oppression. And, and, and this is the end of the Asian American Pacific Islander month. So even pointing out the fact that they just experienced this real pain after this recent shooting. There's also the genocide of the Native American community in, and, the, and during the colonization of America. And then the reality that the Latino community also dealt with segregation and even continue to deal with harmful, harmful stereotypes uh, because they are considered not white enough. And I want to be clear that as I mention each of these communities and I say they as if it's some community out there, there is this reality that we are a diverse enough church that I'm talking about people here. I'm talking about people who are listening online that, that you have experienced these things and felt these things. And so I'm, I'm not naive enough just to pretend like it's something out there, this imaginary person, but there are people here who felt this pain right here in, in this place. What I would love to do is start by talking about how this thing called racism began, the social construction of race and how that began. And, and when I say this, the, the social construction of race, um, I'm not talking about ethnicity. There's a difference between ethnicity and race. Ethnicity comes, is, is kind of like where you come from, your, your people group. Race is something that was created based on, on outward appearances. Uh, and in fact, became something very difficult to nail down exactly what it was when you look at the history of it. Race was something that began to be defined by white people who were trying to justify the oppression uh, of other people. And so they would go from place to place, they're, they're colonizing, and they would say, oh, like, there's, there's something different about these people than us. What makes us so special, you know? And so they start to begin to draw these boundary lines and try to understand. And this begins to justify the transatlantic slave trade, uh, the, the murder of so many of the Native American people. Um, this is, is, it begins to happen. And you get even, you get evolutionary scientists who are, who, biologists who would say, oh, look, they are, they are uh, they're not as evolved as us. And then you get pastors who say, oh, the, it, because they're not white, they don't have a soul. Like ridiculous and horrific things to be stated, to, to move into this idea of saying, if you're not white enough, you, you're not human enough. That's essentially what was happening. They were trying to par parse out and justify their own actions. And, and so they begin to create and try to point out there was, there was a question of, is it, does it have to do with, with brain size? Does it have to do with skin color? Does it have to do with facial features? And every time they try to nail it down, some, some new person would come along and break a barrier that they were like, oh, never mind, I guess, I guess that can't be it. And so they were trying to define what exactly white was. Um, and, and in fact, 
you, you get to the point where even uh, the, the one drop law, where the one drop rule, where they would say, oh, if, if we can trace them back to a single ancestor who was black, then they will be considered black in the eyes of the law, no matter what they look like. So they hadn't even figured out what, what it was exactly yet that, that was black because all they cared about was like making their circle smaller and smaller to feel their sense of superiority. Same thing happened when the Irish moved in uh, and began to live amongst black communities and they, they would call the Irish uh, Negroes turned inside out and they would call the, the black people in that community uh, smoked Irish. There's this sense of like, well, they're not exactly white. They were tr- because they were trying to draw these boundaries and what they didn't want to do was associate themselves with these other people. And so in this construction of, of race, as they tried to make sense of what is it that makes us special, they othered all of these people groups. And I would argue that while racism, because race is only several hundred years old, the sin underlying this attempt to define what makes one special uh, has been around since the fall of humanity. It starts out with Adam and Eve hiding from one another and blaming one another, shows up again at the Tower of Babel, and then again uh, when the Jews are fleeing from slavery and enter into a, a land of enemies, and then again during the exile and attempt to maintain Jewish identity, and then in the formation of the church. At its roots, it's pride, but there's a very particular kind of pride. It's a pride that tries to make God in our image instead of recognizing that we are made in his image, saying this is what makes me special and and why you're other. And what happens, we find ourselves putting our values on God instead of recognizing his value for us. We see our strengths and others' weaknesses and we feel like God is more like me in this way and not like, God, like them in that way. We turn, uh, we turn from us to me versus you and then us versus them. And to be clear, this is, is at the root of racism, but that doesn't mean that uh, there aren't a whole bunch of other factors in this. So I don't want to pretend like this is just a simple issue of just this boil, boil down to this. But I think this root sin is, is seen in that construction of race in the very beginning. What I want to do is point out a few de- developments throughout Scripture. So I'm going to give you kind of like a biblical theology of this development of this, uh, of this sin that, that exists. Um, because I believe that it's going to get us to our, our passage. And when we reread our passage in, in light of what we talked about, I think it's going to bring some new things to light. So instead of today exegeting the text like I would normally do, what I want to do is build a theology behind it. And then I think just simply reading it will bring new, shed new light on, on, this, on this passage. And so let's just start with the very first humans mentioned in the Bible. From Genesis 1, we know Adam and Eve are created, male and female, uh, both in the image of God. Both different, and yet they become one flesh. The two become one, and they both came from one flesh. Adam says, she is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and, and they're, they're joined together. And there's this there's the difference and there's also the oneness. And that's, there's this beautiful thing happening here where they, they're naked and they're unashamed and they just see one another and they, they love one another. They're one. And yet, immediately after that, as they begin to try to become like God by taking this fruit, um, if you know the story, they go to take this fruit and they, they're trying to become like God. And what happens is immediately after that, sin enters 
and breaks apart their relationship. They look at one another and they see the thing that makes them different and they hide it. Not only do they hide the thing that makes them different, but then when God comes on the scene and they try to, Adam attempts to justify himself by blaming the other. And the two who are one flesh all of a sudden become me versus you. If anyone's going down, it's not going to be me, you know? And so this, this begins in the very beginning of sin as sin enters this world. But it goes beyond that whole self-protection, self-justification kind of thing because as we move forward in the biblical narrative, uh, God continues to repeat the idea that all humanity is valuable, made in his image, and yet humans continue to increase in violence. And eventually, you versus me turns into us versus them. We think, when you think about the Tower of Babel, what happens when they f- create this first big human society? And for the first time ever, it says they have developed this new technology called the brick, right? And they can build this tower that goes up to the heavens, and they can work together and make this thing happen. And the reason they do this is because they want to make a name for themselves. Apparently, there are other people around that they want to impress, that they want to say, this is what's going to make us superior. This technology is, is going to show the world who we are. We're going to have some sort of control over God. We'll have a a God-likeness even in this this ability to reach the heavens. And God comes and their very worst fear of being scattered across the earth, being like losing that, like connect, like that ability to to make a name for themselves as one society. He comes, he scatters them, gives them different languages and speech. But all all of this uh, turns into... uh, God is, God is not trying to just separate them. God still has this desire for this unity. And so even though he gives them different languages, he reaches out to an individual named Abraham. And in Abraham, he says, in you, all the nations are going to be blessed. So there's still this hope for and this desire for oneness. But humanity continues to, to, to create you versus me, us versus them. We see what is special about us and how it connects me and, and this individual, you know, whatever that thing is. And we say, well, they're not like that. And so they're, they're other, they're different. And in Abraham, you have God choosing this man and he says he's going to make him a great nation. And the beautiful thing about him choosing Abraham and saying, I'm going to give you, you know, a bunch of children and your children, have, you're going to have a ton, of, a ton of descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, like, the beautiful thing about this is that Abraham or Abram was, was him and his wife could not have kids. And so God chooses this unlikely character in order to say, you don't get the credit for this. I'm going to get the credit for this because God, God doesn't want him to be able to say, well, it was because I come from this land or it's because I have, you know, this special power, right? whatever. I, he can't show anything special. I, I ha- I'm extremely fertile. You know, like he can't point out anything and say, this is what's special about me. He says, he, he simply has to say, this was all God. And then when, when, uh, when the Israelites are hearing these stories, they're hearing them as they're fleeing as slaves, slaves from Egypt. And they're hearing these stories and it would be easy for them to be like, yeah, God chose us, we're special. And in Deuteronomy 7, 7, God's like, no, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest. I, you're actually the least. Again, God has this idea like you cannot point at something beautiful or wonderful or interesting or whatever in you that makes you better than anybody else. You're in fact used by me and blessed by me to become a blessing to the rest of the nations. 
And so they go, uh, and they, after they escape, um, there's this crazy story where they, in all of this, you would think they would get this, right? That they would get, like, we're not special because of our own abilities or anything by, about us. And yet there's this story as they're fleeing in, in Numbers where Moses actually has married this Cushite woman. Um, this Cushite woman, she's from the area of, like, Sudan, Ethiopia, and he marries, he's married this woman and his sister looks at him and, and like condemns it. And it's like, you can't marry her, you know. And the only reason she would be able to point out where this woman is from that is because she's different than the rest. There's actually something really interesting. I think it has to do with the fact that her skin color was darker than everybody else's. Like, I think there's a key in the text that would tell us this actually. Um, because what happens is immediately after that, God curses her with leprosy and, and it says that her skin was diseased like snow. It's almost as if she's, she's like, I'm going to notice the thing that's different about you that makes you not one of us. And I'm gonna, I think it should keep you out of being part of this people group. And God is like, if you think that that keeps them out, let me, let me, let me give you the exact opposite of that. Show you how special you are with your really, really light skin. And she ends up outside of the camp for seven days because she has leprosy. So the one she wants to push outside of the people of God is it, now it's turned around and she's pushed outside of the people of God. God over and over and over takes the, these ideas of me versus you, us versus them, and he, he breaks them down and he shows his value for all of humanity, his do, desire to see them all, uh, all blessed and one. And then they enter the promised land. Right? And, uh, and God is like, you need to stay holy. And, and there's a separation that happens between them and the other nations. But it's specifically bound around their worship. I don't want you to start worshiping other idols. I don't want you to start worshiping other gods. Be, worship idols. And because of this, they begin to view their, they become ethnocent, eth, they have this ethnocentrism. Like focusing on their ethnicity. Focusing on their, their you know, grand, great-great-grandfather uh, Abraham. You know, and, and they're, they're thinking about this is what makes us special. They, they continue to create these identities around things other than God. And over and over again, God shows this has, these outward things have nothing to do with what makes you special. And in fact, this is why all throughout the Old Testament, you'll find different non-Jewish individuals invited into the community and even becoming part of the lineage of Jesus. And so... Even the lineage of the Messiah is not this purely Jewish thing, which shows like it's not about being Jewish. And, and in fact, um, we have it's you've got these uh, non-Jewish women: Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba. All these women that are in this lineage, and God, we get to see this in Scripture. It's beautiful. And so this desire to say that, that they have something special, and therefore everybody else is less valuable, is just shut down. And, they, and it's funny because the very thing that they were supposed to keep themselves separate from was the, the worship of other gods is the very thing they do and end up in exile for. And so they're in exile, they're, in these, uh, they're scattered all over, and they're asking the question, what makes us us? How do I remain Jewish? And they, they're trying to make sense of, you know, the, our, our temple's been destroyed, everything's been destroyed. How do I keep my identity? And so they fight to make sense of it all. 
And so they, 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 they begin to boil it down with where they worship and, and even some of, the, uh, some of the, the practice of circumcision, dietary laws, these kinds of things. They begin to they, like, stand firm on these things. And when they come out of exile, they come back home, the people who were left behind, are now, they have been intermarried with other individuals. And then they have to ask the question, well, if, you aren't, if, you, if your ancestor, if your mom or dad or whatever wasn't Jewish, are you really Jewish? This is where the Samaritans come from. And they create more of a, a divide. No, 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 you're not one of us. You're different. They create this boundary, right? Again, it's like we're trying to create and hold onto this boundary. And then not, in between the Testaments, you get this persecution that breaks out of Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV begins to persecute them specifically for their, their Jewish identity markers of circumcision, dietary laws, and, and then their, their scriptures. And he, as an oppressor, comes in and tries to make them like him, forcing them to eat pork and, and like sacrificing to Zeus in their temple. And you see this horrible thing happen. And what, what they do, how they respond is they have two ways to respond. Either they can say, you know what, I'm going to back down. Uh, maybe I don't need to hold on to, you know, these dietary laws. Maybe I don't need to continue to do this or that. And so they, they either back down or they stand even firmer in their Jewish identity. And actually, this is how, uh, this is how the, the ideas of circumcision and dietary laws become so central and so important when we see that all the struggling in the New Testament church. Because I think as I've studied uh, persecuted people groups in history, I found that oftentimes people often identify most with the thing uh, they're persecuted for. People often identify most with the thing they're persecuted for. And so, um, this is what happens. They, their dietary laws and circumcision become these boundary markers. That says, this is what makes you truly Jewish. This is what, how we know you're in or you're out. And this is the scene that Jesus enters into. This mess of division and trying to point out what makes us special and makes everybody else other. This is why you have Jew and then Gentile. Everyone else, there's no, there's no other ethnicity, just Gentile. Everybody else is just Gentile, right? I mean, you have Samaritan, but they're like the halfway in between. Jew and Gentile. And Jesus enters into the scene and changes everything up. He goes to the Samaritan woman and talks with her. He spends time uh, with, with Gentiles and with Samaritans, heals their, heals their people and forgives their sins. And this kind of just messes with the entire community. They're trying to make sense of, what do I do with this? And Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Spirit all take part in the redeeming what has been destroyed by this human sin, trying to make God like in our image, pointing out what's great about us. And where there was once husband and wife and, and becoming one flesh, but then becoming you versus me, now Christ is saying all will be made one in, the fle in my flesh and blood. Jew, Gentile, slave free, everybody becomes one in me. And there's that, that repeated phrase by Paul that says in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. And he's not saying that we all lose these identity markers, not that they, that they just go away, but that in, in Christ, all of these things become these meaningless divi for dividing lines. They don't make anybody special or in or out or whatever. And this is where the gospel begins to speak directly to this sin. Christ's work on the cross destroys those things that divide us. And we all become one in him. 
The kingdom he is bringing is one where us versus them simply melts into Christ and we all become simply us. This is what Jesus does. All people, every nation, tribe, tongue uh, can now look to Jesus, the true and exact image of God. No one can look to self uh, to differentiate between us and them. We can't look at race, gender, social class, class ethnicity, uh, none of it. And, and we can't even look at like refuge versus all these other churches. We simply look to Christ. I'm not saved because I'm special. I'm not saved because I did something you know, awesome, because I, I stand out in some special way. I saved, I'm saved because God reached down and, and saved me. Because he lavished me with his love, because he is good, not because I am good. And that, that is the reality of it all. It breaks, it breaks all of our pride down when we realize I didn't get saved because I'm smarter than somebody, because I'm you know, better than anybody in any way. I'm saved because he saved me. You're saved because he saved you, because he loves you. That's it. But regardless of, of what we were supposed to get from all this, the Christians in the early church really did struggle with this. And because Christianity started out as this Jewish community, this, this Jewish movement, messianic Jewish movement. Um, essentially, uh, you know, it, they were trying, there was this reality, they're like, we're, we're Jewish, we have a, this Messiah, and now these Gentiles are getting saved and coming and becoming a part of this community. How do we decide how Gentile someone's allowed to be? What things do they need to get rid of because in order to become Jewish enough to still be part of this community? And this is what like so many of the New Testament writers spill ink over trying to deal with like, no, doesn't matter what, we don't need to get rid of, of their Gentileness. We don't need to get rid of their Greekness or, you know, or their, their, their Samaritanness. We want it all to be part of this community. We want the diversity in here because it's not these little identity markers that make them special. It's that Christ died for our sins and he is the one who is the true image of God. That we, the Jewish people realize I, we aren't the, the image bearer in, in and of ourselves, but in fact, all these people work together and we, we glorify God and point to Jesus, who is the true image of God. And so uh, this is where it all comes to a head in our scripture for the day. The book of Ephesians is a very clear picture of the oneness created in Christ. And let's keep in mind this prideful sin that makes, uh, that makes oneself the standard of the image of God that others, anyone else, that turns us to me versus you, us versus them. And this is the sin that forces conformity, uniformity, and instead of genuine unity and diversity. But even more importantly, listen to how Christ overcomes this evil. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting 
in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Paul is saying, no identity marker, no identity marker is gonna save you. No nationality, no ethnicity, only Christ. Because it's no longer us who lives, it's Christ. He is the image and we all are brought into him. That's how we all become one. So what does racism have to do with all this? Obviously there is the process of othering that took place in the creation of race and an attempt to point out what makes one race superior to another. But what does this have to do with uh, Jews forcing non-Jews to be circumcised, to be incorporated in the body? I mean, no one is saying right now that, that people of color need to lighten their skin in order to be saved. Well, I'm, I hope not. Um, but we haven't added to the gospel, right? I mean, that's, that's the question I think we're asking. But I, I would say, first of all, think... I think we should be careful in this claim, especially those of us who are white. Uh, we can often be blind to the things we view as normative Christian practices that are actually white Christian practices. We can find ourselves doing church in a rather culturally white way and be frustrated when people of color don't stick around. Essentially saying, you don't fit in our community because you don't worship in the ways we do, respond to sermons in the way that we do, read scripture in the ways that we do. But... I digress. The point you still may be asking is like, hey, but we're not making a requirement for salvation. And I would, re would argue, yeah, I, I would hope that you're not doing that. Theologically, it's not a requirement for salvation. It shouldn't, it, you would, we're not going to add to the gospel. But even though we may not have added to the gospel, the question is, are we fully living out the gospel? We're all called on this earth to live as a current picture of the future kingdom. And sadly, many, as many have pointed out, Sunday morning, or for us Sunday night, it, is, it can become one of the most, it has become in America, the most segregated hour. And sadly, last year when protests took place, many white Christians were so obsessed with the details leading up to George Floyd's arrest that they couldn't see the pain of an entire community of people that had been feeling this injustice for centuries. And sadly, instead of mourning with those who mourn, many people who claim to have Christ reigning over their hearts accused the community and anyone else who agreed with them of being brainwashed sheep who just love being victims. And when those who felt this injustice said, black lives matter, they were saying, it feels like nobody believes that these lives matter and it seems to be necessary that we say something about it. And yet many retorted, well, all lives matter. Now, I'm not saying that all Christians need to start saying the phrase Black Lives Matter. That's, that's not my point. But if we are living as people under the lordship of Jesus 
and as displays of God's future kingdom and kingdom that is here now through us, we need to be people that make it very clear that black lives do matter. We need to be people who mourn with those who mourn, and we need to be people who stand in solidarity with the oppressed and the marginalized. We peacefully protest, we vote for more just laws and leaders, we sign petitions, we fast, we cry out to God, we continue to preach the gospel which unifies all people in Christ, and we live in actual community with those who are different from us. Here's the thing, racism isn't going away. But even if it did, it would be replaced by some other evil rooted in this age-old us-versus-them tendency to make ourselves feel superior. Until Christ returns, the reality is that, that people groups in power will always find ways to mark out their own identity and attempt to show their superiority. So the sin will come, continue to show up. This is a common thread that runs throughout all human history and it's only the gospel that will combat this in whatever form it reveals itself. And as we live out the reality of God's, the future kingdom of God here and now, I find that two things are needed. I'm coming to a close here soon. Two things are needed. Transformed systems and structures and transformed people, transformed hearts. That's right, it's not one or the other, okay? The political left focuses primarily on transforming systems and structures, as if that's gonna fix the problem. But until hearts are changed, good systems will be corrupted and used for evil. And other new oppressive and unjust systems and structures will pop up. In fact, if we think that all we need to do, uh, all we need is new systems, then we simply look at the people in power and put all the blame on them and then justify destroying the system by any means possible, even violence and force. And we feel justified in harming them because we view them as oppressors. But Jesus calls us to nonviolent resistance and subversive ways of living so that we can reveal the brokenness of the systems in this world. This is why someone like Martin Luther King Jr. was so powerful. So powerful. He understood the, the, the beauty of nonviolent resistance. He understood what it looked, what, that how much it revealed the brokenness of the kingdoms of this world. Much like Christ, who in the face of injustice peacefully walked to the cross and revealed how unjust the systems and kingdom of Rome was and how beautiful his kingdom is. Much like that, those women and men who were holding up signs and being knocked down and beaten, but not fighting back and saying, this is not what we stand for. We do not stand for violence. Those people who stood up and, and were willing to nonviolently protest, they revealed the brokenness of the systems and kingdoms of this world and the beauty of the kingdom of God. So it's not just get rid of the, the, fix the systems and structures. It's not gonna be just that. We look forward to a day when all these systems and structures are, are over, just taken over by Christ and his kingdom, right? But on the opposite side of the political spectrum, they're on the right argue that transforming hearts will resolve most of the problems or all the problems because individual responsibility makes everyone the result of their own efforts or lack thereof. And there are a couple of problems with this uh, firstly, 
we don't just need people to stop being racist. We need people to submit their lives to Jesus. That's really what's going to transform this world and this, their hearts. And as I mentioned, our tendency towards pride that makes us feel better than others will never stop. There's always, it's always going to pop up in some way or another. But even more importantly, many of the current systems we have in place, laws that we have in place, structures that we have in place, will still harm individuals even if hearts are changed. This means that we need to be able to recognize those injustices, which, uh, which means being willing to do an assessment of the disproportionate outcomes of any system or structure and ask how our participation in them could actually uh, lead to more oppression even, uh, even, if, uh, even, if, we, even if we think that it, it doesn't look right. I'm sorry, I'm like, I lost my place actually. <laughs> we, we, we look at it and we ask, do the outcomes look just and how can I fight against that? Just because we think, well, the individuals aren't racist doesn't mean that the system doesn't need to be worked on because no system is Christ's kingdom yet. No kingdom on this earth is doing it exactly right. No structure is perfect. It's all created by humans. And until Christ's kingdom comes, all systems will have their brokenness and marginalize and oppress people. And we're going to always have to work on those as well. See, essentially, we need both transformed people and, a tr and Christ's kingdom to come. And until Christ's kingdom arrives fully, the systems of this earth are just going to fall short, right? But we should also be inviting others to be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. So we do these things. We, we continue to fight, protest. We continue to nonviolently say, speak out against injustices. But we also go and we tell, preach the gospel to people to see hearts transformed. I want to close with this. We need to do some introspection because maybe you as an individual can confidently say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. But what things do you identify with outside of Christ that make you feel superior to some other one, someone else? Maybe it's not as obvious like feeling superior, but maybe you don't have a conscious, uh, maybe you don't have a conscious hierarchy or something like that and devalue others. But still, maybe you compare yourself, maybe you feel better about yourself when you look at someone else's sin or you look at someone else's lack of righteousness or you, your good deed that you did that day. You read your Bible that day. You start to feel better. You're like, at least I'm not doing that, you know? What things do we look at ourselves and start to feel superior about? Because that same sin, that same root that's in racism, in the construction of racism, is that same thing that's in us when we start to value ourselves as higher or feel better about ourselves or think that we're more holy now because we, we are doing this. When, when we stop and for, when we forget that it's really, it's all Christ and his righteousness, not me and my works and my deeds or whatever. That's, the gospel requires us to call out to God and say, I need you and that's the, only, that's the only reason why I'm able to stand before you is because of you and what you've done. So we're gonna do some, we, I, I want us to do some introspection and ask God if that same root that's found in, in the birth of racism dwells in our hearts uh, in less obvious ways, because I believe God wants to heal us and invite and, and have us invite others into this transformative power of Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And I think, man, such an appropriate thing to do because the, the communion table represents coming to, wow, it's, getting, it's coming down. The communion table represents God and his family coming together, sitting around their family table. 
And the beauty is that, that we do have a diverse enough church that we can come together and say like, hey, we are, we are doing life with people who are not just like me. Like not just, you know, and, and when we take communion together, we proclaim that Christ's kingdom unifies us. It's Christ's blood and his body that, that unify us and not us and our own, our own abilities or whatever. And so um, I, I, I want to take a minute and, and just uh, let's, let's ask the Lord to um, guide our hearts and help us to see any sins that we might have. But ultimately, when we come to this place, we recognize that our sins are forgiven by his death and resurrection. And we can have confidence as we take the, the body and the blood that we can say, you are the one that restores all. You're the one who unites us all. So we can sit at the table with you and with our brothers and sisters. Let's go ahead and, and pray, and then we will uh, we'll partake in communion. Father, thank you that you have united us by your son, Jesus. Forgive us for any kind of superiority we may feel because of anything in us. And help us to always point to you as the truer and better image bearer that we might all seek to be more like you and not make others more like us. We love you, God. We thank you. Help us to, to love you in all that we do and proclaim you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.